I feel like I am parenting my teenage and 20-year-old self, too. I have a lot of kids. I have, like, grown-ass children I got to parent and give advice to. I got teenagers. I got little kids. I got, there's probably a baby in there that I have to parent. Hello and welcome to Fuck Yeah, the podcast where we say fuck yeah to doing the damn thing. Is that kind of how we're feeling today? Yeah, I think so. We're just doing it. Also, I'm Sarah Tom Jessen, <laughs> and I am joined by my um, co-conspirator, co-conspirator Robin Jennings. Hello. Hi, Robin. Hi, I, I have some questions for you about how this experience has been going, but I realized in listening to our first few episodes that we never really put you through the rapid fire questions that we ended up landing on. Oh, so, right, right. Um, Robin, are you okay if I uh, ask you some rapid fire questions? Of course. I love questions. So what was your first mode of masturbation? I got to know. I think maybe you mentioned it in the Sandra episode, I but so. I want you to, you know, confirm that my understanding is correct. Uh, my first mode of masturbation, I, I believe, was under the water faucet. My mother told me about it. So, well, she had a um, a hands-free sprayer in her bathtub. She had a separate bathtub that had a sprayer. And she told me once, like, well, you know, if you ever want to, you could use my bathtub and the sprayer can feel really nice in certain places. And I, I was old enough to know what she was talking about. And how um, old do you think you were? Probably um, 13. And how did that, I can't relate to my mom sharing a pleasure like insider tip with me so how did that feel to you to have your mom share that information I mean it was fine it was like one of those things where she my parents regularly overshared with me and it took me a long time to realize that um you know I thought that they were being like progressive and open about something that everybody else was closed-minded about. But then in retrospect, I can see like there was also some really bad boundaries, you know. But, you know, so that felt fine. It was a little awkward and I did try it. And I primarily used her bathtub. So there would be moments where I was home alone and I would go up to her bathtub and I was like, wow, this does feel really great. And I try all the different settings and stuff. And there was one time where I was supposed to be home alone but uh, my stepfather came home. Yeah, this was the story you shared when we talked to Sandra. You know, I had a funny experience where I also got caught by my stepdad um, masturbating. I, we were, I was probably in sixth grade by the time um, he came in. I still had the Cabbage Patch doll, so that was still, <laughs> that was still my thing. You were using the Cabbage Patch? Uh-huh, uh-huh. I was... I was on my bed and he walked in and it was like deep shame. I mean, gosh, I can like 
tap into that moment and feel how much shame I felt and how embarrassed he was. He shut the door. Neither of us said a word and we never talked about it again. God, I mean, what is that shame? You know, like I I don't get like I didn't grow up in a particularly religious household, but it's just like a deep culture shame, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's the, you know, passing down of really a lack of good education or I mean, really from home, not, I mean, forget even school. Like I think we're at the place now where in the sex education movement, we're just trying to coach parents around. It is okay. You should be the holders of this information for your kids. Right. You should be the ones having the first conversations. And at a fairly young age, just about things like this is your body. These are the parts of your body that might feel a little bit more sensitive. This is why we name it the actual part so that you can share with me if like, you know, you're the only person that should touch here in your body. But like in the absence of having any of those conversations, as adults, we're totally ill-equipped to have those conversations. I would imagine, I mean, maybe the same is true for your stepdad, that for my stepdad, the gender dynamics right. of being the man, finding the teen preteen tween girl masturbating and just being like i i am so ill-equipped and mm. i'm not the right person to have this conversation erase erase erase, erase. Yeah. immediate shutdown just yeah. totally act like it never happened yeah i mean it would be interesting actually even to ask my mom like did he even say anything to her ever because probably not, right? Should we get your mom on this podcast? <laughs> yeah. I actually was thinking that my mom should come on the podcast at some yeah. point. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Maybe after our, our parenting episode, we can have her on and ask her her thoughts. I actually have no idea if she would come on the podcast. I bet she would. Yeah. I we'll have to would. ask her. I, um, But yeah, I think after that incident, I moved it to my bathroom, which did not have a sprayer that's disattached and so I just started using the actual faucet water coming just so I would scoot under the faucet with my feet up you know near the dials or whatever and um and that is a different type of thing it's actually better it's kind of like going from a really high-pitched bullet to um a rumbly Hitachi you know magic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's much sense. more rumbly and it takes a moment, but it's not like attacking you. Yeah. <laughs> Which this rare really probably was. Intense, right? Yeah. It's a little. Um, you also mentioned that like that balance in how your parents communicated with you being like when you were younger, kind of thinking that that was cool. Mm -hmm. But then as you get older, you're like, wait, was that inappropriate? I feel like that's pretty universal. Yeah. I mean, or it's it's like one end of the spectrum or the other. Like I have those moments too where I'm like, oh, I there were certain things in my childhood and my teen years that I was like, oh, this is so cool that my parents are really young and we do things really differently than other families do. And some of that was completely shaped who I am and was amazing in a variety of ways. And some of it was inappropriate. Yeah. Parents start telling you about their personal sex life. And then you're like, oh. no, 
Yeah. I'll make through this. Yeah. Especially <laughs> if you have. Yeah. 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 Um, well, and I, I think we have a friend in common who caught her parents having sex and it was a really traumatizing experience. I think that that's pretty common too, where there's like this total absence of any conversations about the body and pleasure. And then you catch your parents having sex and it's just awful. Yeah. It's very confusing if you don't know what's going on. Yeah. You've never heard of it. Um, I'm also not surprised now that you keep having your mind blown every time someone says, oh, well, I started masturbating when I was six, or I discovered my genitals at this age. I I think Pony's story so far has been my favorite. No, that's been amazing. I mean, of course, you're like... (laughs) Like, talk about some foreshadowing. Path that you're on, you know, in in that moment, I don't know that Pony was like, one day I'll be leather daddy. Yeah, no, um, no, I you don't know until I like when time bends on itself. I had um, a girlfriend in my early 20s who used to say, I'm sending a snapshot of what's happening right now back to my 16 year old self. Wow. You know, when they were like really you know, joyous or queer, you know, joy happening, she would take a pause to be like, I'm just, I'm sending this back to my little person. And I thought that that was really nice. I think of that every now and then. That's so interesting. I love that. I I saw a thing on TikTok where um, uh, this woman was saying to put up a picture of your uh, childhood picture of yourself. So that when you are um, beating yourself up and using poor self-talk or Mm. um, having a really rough uh, situation or you're going through your healing process and you're having to, you know, say some uncomfortable truths or whatever, to look at that picture of that child and to, you know, parent your inner child to know that this is the soft little being that you're doing all of this work for. You're, you're making a better life because we are still those children at the same time. If we can see that preciousness and innocence and vitality that we, that's so easy to find in young children and put that picture up of yourself and be like, I am in many ways still this person. I still, I deserve to be parented well, but not, now Ugh. I get to do it. Yeah. My therapist that's said, so last week, sweet. She, she said last week, she's like, congratulations at the end of our session. She's like, congratulations, you're the parent to a six-year-old little girl now who is me. Oh. And then I get to reparent myself and give her the um, kind of attention that she deserved to have but didn't get. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so funny. I had a, a, a similar experience recently in therapy. I, I feel like it took me um, being in solo therapy for, I, I don't know, at least five years before I started <laughs> like having some of the revelations or like feeling some of the benefits of diving into that like deep childhood stuff. Like it was it was real dark for a while. So if anyone is in that place right now, like just know that it it, <laughs> it gets better. Like right. you have moments that are really nice. But I came across – actually, I didn't come across it. Um, 
my ex-wife found an envelope of photos that had fallen behind the dresser and gave it to me. And I'm so thankful that she did. And it was a photo, it was a couple photos of my stepdad, my mom and I from when I was young, who has, my stepdad has passed. My uncle who has passed, there was a handful of, I'm like, oh, this must have been from an altar or something. Your gay uncle? My gay uncle, yeah. Yeah, he had, I mean, he has a very sad story. He really died very prematurely. Actually, everyone who's died in my life has died fairly young. It's mm. it's weird. But there was in there a photo of me from probably age five. And I have all these, I, we must have been gardening because I have all these flowers in my arms getting ready to go into the ground, which I don't have memories of gardening as a young, I garden a lot now, but I don't have memories of that. Yeah, it's such a part of so, Yeah, it's a huge part of my life. And I come to find out it's been a huge part of everyone in my like family lines. I mean, my great grandparents were had a little like er, what would be considered an urban farm now. Um, but uh, so we must have been gardening and I'm so happy. And I realized that this photo is from before, like before times, before things got more complicated in my childhood. Right. So the stuff that has been a lot of the stuff that I've been working through in therapy for so long happened after that point. And now I have this photo that actually is like this portal into a time of like true innocence and happiness that I'm able to, I felt like I could tap into, like now kind of bypass some of that messy mm. stuff and tap into a time that was more, less complicated right. and like more of my true essence. And so I guess I would add on to that suggestion of like, have that photo of yourself um, as the touchstone for compassion, but also maybe like for me now I have something almost to strive towards. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. To yeah. tap into that, to get back to that spot. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. We, those were our war- that was my one warm-up question. I have oh, yeah. another one for you. <laughs> Last photo on your phone. Oh, let me look. Let's see. See, I don't even remember. You're asking me these questions and it's like all new to me, even though I've asked them. Um, last photo. Oh, it's of candles. I sent them to you, Sarah. Because <laughs> uh, we're going to have a party um, that is witch themed. So um, witch bitch goddess themed all of the uh, holy aspects of our feminine. Um, I don't know. Expression. Expression. Thank you. Thank you. So um, we need candles, obviously. So I sent you pictures of candles I was going to purchase. And I did. I, have them I couldn't home. decide if you were in your happy place or if you were in my happy place walking around the candle emporium because I was like, I want to be there. It was so great. And let me tell you, getting there. So this is in North North Hollywood. In this part of, I have not been to this part of the valley in a long time, but it is, it is like, 
I would say they're like six to like 10 years ahead of us in the um, uh, dystopian future. You know, (laughs) looking around, I was like, wow, you guys are ahead of the curve. It was disturbing. I was like, it, it felt like everything was either a boarded up store with graffiti or it was a front for like mobsters. Like it had, or it was a strip club that I had no desire to go to from the exterior. You know, it was like that kind of place. And then nestled in all of that is this wonderful candle warehouse. (laughs) So anyway, little gems all over Los Angeles, even if you have to Mad Max it to get there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Celebrity, first celebrity crush. Oh, right. Um, Let's see. My Well, I think the first one that I really fell hard for was... Buster Keaton, because I found silent movies via Benny and June. So which is a movie from the 90s that I don't feel like many people know of, but it had Johnny Depp in it. And he was um, this kind of he was obsessed with uh, silent movies and specifically Buster Keaton. And so then I looked into Buster Keaton and I just lost myself I love and still to this day if I see a picture he's so sad he looks so sad he always has the same expression on his face and you know and they're doing like I love the 20s so much I mean I know you know this but it's like partly just the makeup the men wearing makeup it's like put that black lipstick on a man you know make his like give him all the eyeshadow so he looks super sad it's like really the beginning of my goth roots like I do I think you can point to you know Buster Keaton, maybe before that, like Aubrey Beardsley and all of these like kind of the the beginnings of like the love of the dark and the sad. (laughs) So it it was maybe less I want to be with you and more I want to be you. (gasps) Sarah, stop. (laughs) I think I have always mixed those two things up because I would say at the same time I got a big crush on um, Kurt Cobain. You know, and I made out with his posters and also dressed like him. You know, there was no delineation for me. That's really, yeah, I think that's always been, that's why I flag so hard, I think, is because I I want to be and am attracted to the same thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. I mean, I do have to say, I know you haven't seen it yet. But that does make me think of the new David Bowie documentary. I know. I and see. why I feel like you really have to see it. Um, and like I want to talk about it on the pod. But Moon Age Daydream is so interesting. It's, I would say, not a true um, documentary in the sense that it is not Uh, exploring the totality of David Bowie. There are things that I felt were, I'm not a super fan, just I'm throwing that out there. But, uh, you know, there were some aspects of his life that I kind of wanted to learn more about. But in the sense of it being a real exploration of his creative process And that the director, editor, it's also just so clearly the like epitome of 
of him expressing his creative process because the Mm. editing is incredible. Again, some of the arc of the story, I'm like, you needed another editor or somebody (laughs) who wasn't as like deep in it um, to to come in and be, you know, slash some things or like, Hey, you need a little bit more story here or this uh, escalator scene is how you've shown it 17 times. But um, that aside, I thought of you when I was watching, I mean, actually I thought of many of the really creative people that I respect while Mm. I was watching the film because it's so rich in terms of its creative expression. But I'm going to bring that back to the silent movies and Buster Keaton because uh, I know that David Bowie for you has been a uh, an icon in terms of his gender, his expression, his sexuality. And I always have really loved your approach around um, teaching about uh, sexual icons. Mm. So I guess maybe like I want to just hear like what David Bowie has meant to you and how you've channeled his energy. That's a really good question. For With Bowie, what's interesting is I've never found Bowie sexually attractive. Mm. I've just found him very attractive in, a, mm-hmm. in, in that way almost that Sometimes it's not like that I get that jealousy feeling, but you know, that feeling sometimes when you see a really wonderful artwork and you and it's so in line with what you would want to do, but that you didn't think of that. And then they Mm -hmm. did it and they lived that life. Like I just like not that I want to be David Bowie, but there's just so much respect for what he was doing, even if there's sometimes where aesthetically. I don't like what he's doing necessarily, but it's so it's such important, great work. And especially for the time that he was doing these things and how he's so authentic feeling to me. He feels like he's just doing the thing that he thinks is is right. And he does the confidence that he has had well gosh it's so in one of the things that was interesting to me about the film is that it really is i would say if it has a thesis or a focus it is on his um unapologetic nature when it came to his art and something that i found really interesting um or my take on it was that it was very masculine like Mm. and you can tell that the creator of the documentary, I mean, it's the the thing that's unfortunate is because there's such a void of like approved documentaries, you know, there's, I think people are probably going to want this film to be the, like the story of David Bowie. It is not that it is right. a creative man's interpretation of all it's exclusively David Bowie source material and like an artist diving into another artist's process. And it is so masculine. Like I was like, I would never, I have never been in relationship to a creative process in which I've been able to give myself that much permission to immerse my whole life into it. 
And for me, that feels almost like quintessentially part of like my feminine nature is that like if I'm not caretaking or like somehow contributing to like a domestic, I don't know, um, life that I'm not like uh, valuable um, or like producing for the greater good. And the David Bowie that came through in Moon Age Daydream is so just unapologetically committed to his creative vision. And one of my take, one of my personal takeaways from it was like, oh, I think I'm starting to reconcile my relationship a little bit with men because I'm not, this doesn't feel entitled to me. Like I'm able to appreciate it for what it is and for what he offered. And I think in the past, because of all of my deep wounds around men and masculinity and how disempowered I have felt in relationship to men throughout my Mm -hmm. life, um, I have just had a total rejection of that. And uh, I know that that's really different for you, but I, I felt like oh this is so quintessentially like dudes pontificating about other dudes and i still loved it do you think it was the masculinity minus the toxic and that's why you can get into or the masculinity that isn't framed around um subjugation of femininity or rejection of femininity Well, here's something that's interesting, though, is his first wife, which I didn't know about, but Andrea is a super fan. So she was like, let me tell you all about his first wife, who made zero appearance in the film. Like, she's not Mm. mentioned once. His his children aren't mentioned ever. Um, And she apparently was incredibly influential and the visionary who was like, no, if you want to wear dresses you wear dresses like she helped him develop that persona that became Ziggy Stardust and was the whole basis of his performance career. She's completely erased from the entire Mm. film. And so in that sense, I do think that there is it's not an intentional subjugation of women in the film, but it's almost like, yeah, I mean, there was there's plenty to be critical about from like a feminist lens. and I just didn't, I didn't feel, I didn't walk away feeling like, oh, I want to tear that apart. I just felt very like, you know, still kind of immersed in just the beauty and the creativity of it all. Yeah. And isn't that just how pervasive it is in the culture as far as like just misogyny or patriarchal structures? It's even in this instance, you, there's always going to be layers of it. And especially at that time was much more intense than it is now, but it's still just kind of completely pervasive. Yeah. And erasure may seem sort of like passive, right? Um, but it still is. I hesitate to use the word violent, but it still is very subjugating and, you know, kind of really hard to crawl out from underneath is that this is the way of things in our society that female contributions are just not valued. Yeah. Well, in, in that erasure, violence maybe is a good word because it is a, it is so uh, appearing to be passive. It's Mm. just this thing that nobody's going to end up talking about. You're just, she's just gone in, in this particular interpretation. It's still a great film and everything 
I would love I want to see it and we should do a whole episode on it. <laughs> yes. But the um the thing of of erasing women it's part of what growing up makes us think that women aren't as valuable because you don't see them participating in making these things. I had no idea about that part of David Bowie. I don't know that much. I just know, you know, the outward. I've never researched David Bowie. I've just enjoyed David Bowie. But yeah, there's always all of these women that have been, you know, having great ideas, working really hard, and we never hear or see them. We just see their work. Yeah, I you recently introduced me to some of the silent movie stars, mm-hmm. which I was so surprised that I have never um, seen any of their work. Of just like how pro- progressive the work that they were creating is the 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 ways in which femininity was being expressed through their films was contained multitudes like way more than you know you see in the culture now as far as like representations of women and I'm like how is it possible that this is the very first time I'm seeing any of these images yeah the the 20s they were the silent era hardcore I mean so much eyeliner cutting off your hair (laughs) after millennia of being forced to have it long taking off the corsets and wearing loose braless, you know, dresses that are baggy and not showing your shape. It's just, I love it so much smoking and drinking when it, you know, it's just like, please, if it wasn't such an oppressive era in general, that's like the space I would want to go to. And like the filmmaking before the studios really got established and it was very like, get your hands on a camera, kind of, a lot of it was you know, performed out of like theatrical institutions or just small groups of people making guerrilla style films. It's there's a world, the whole world there. I love it so much. It really changed <laughs> when talkies came along. <laughs> it got much more corporate. In this fascist state that we're in, like where are the pockets of the art? I, I don't know. What is your what's the art that you're that's giving you life these days? I'm really um, intrigued by what's going on with self-expression right now. I think the trans movement, the non-binary movement, and the feminist movement are um, intertwined right now, enmeshed. And, um, and the more you know, intersectional and enmeshed that we can become with those movements. I think it's lifting everybody up right now. To me, there's a direct line between um, the the offense of the patriarchy and the reaction to trans people, especially um, uh, trans feminine people. You know what I mean? It wouldn't. It's no it, emasculation. Uh, through feminine dress wouldn't be an issue if, you know, being feminine wasn't a, uh, a, a lowering of status for men, you know? So that's like, so for the more accepting and open we can be of non-binary people, of, of trans people, the more we can 
express ourselves visually really feels to me like people are getting more creative and more expressive and saying fuck it to all of these rules that we've been given. And that I think is an artistic personal personal venture that people are um, lifting themselves and the rest of us up with. I think it's like bold, like the, all of the the rules that we've been given are are such bullshit around our appearances. And I do think that there's like an artistic movement going on around the that. self as the canvas. Yes. Yeah. You know, the patriarchy is stifling and we all are getting a little breathing room and just want more room. Mm. That makes me think of uh, this last episode with Pony. And I know that, uh, you know, we wanted to have a check-in today of, wow, the podcast is live. What does it feel like? How has it been? But I um listening, obviously, you know, you and I have heard the episodes a number of times through the process of editing and producing them and stuff and um, getting to listen to the Pony episode again uh, definitely made me, well, one, appreciative of just how interesting our uh, community of people are and how much I love this really vibrant community that we are building here on the podcast. But I also then thought, oh, you know, I wonder how listeners responded yeah. to this episode and and felt about the, you know, we're going to be going in so many different directions. And I think that that idea that kind of came out of that episode of the drive, the inner um, spirit that calls out to be seen and to live how you want to live despite there being no kind of social conditioning or positive reinforcement around it is really has always been my takeaway around having pony in my life and of that episode in particular. There, I mean, he's bold, to say the least. He's a soft-spoken, bold person. And I, I appreciate that so much. Mm -hmm. I, I feel inspired uh, by Pony in a similar way to Bowie. There's mm. just certain people that you're like, wow, you are, you're doing yourself hard. <laughs> you <know? laughs> I love it. The Dolly Parton quote that we have up in Ruby's room because she's obsessed with Dolly Parton is find yourself and then do it on purpose. Mm. It's something along those lines. I'm I'm botching it, but I love I'm like, that is a way to live. Yeah, Dolly's one of those people as well. She's doing it how she wants to do it, and she's doing it hard, you know? She She's and that's it's the uniqueness of someone that really stands out that you cannot sum them up in a few words. Mm. I think that's beautiful. And that's um, kind of what we're what I'm going for in life to be as authentic. What do we have? Um, bold authenticity is one of our our goals goals. <laughs> yeah. It's one of our, no. it's part of our incantation. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I think of you being that way. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about, because I think of you as being so bold and so confident in who you are. And the podcast launched. <laughs> and I think it was real scary, right? It, it was so scary for me. I had, um, 
a couple days of really strong anxiety, like where it was vibrating in my body. And they coincided with uh, the first episode being launched. It was also the interview for myself. And I was just having, it really came down to a fear of being that publicly, boldly authentic. Because I really, when we had the conversation, I was just being myself. You were being yourself. We're just having like the kind of conversations we have all the time. And I didn't think much about it. But once once it was published, it really racked my body for a couple days. And you, you know, you were doing all the social and I appreciate that. But I was like blinders on. I'm like, I can't look. I can't look. I was just waiting or anticipating that there was going to be some kind of like backlash, like I'm going to get a call. Why did you say this? What did that mean? Or that people are going to think that it's, I don't know, just all of the self-doubt stuff. So, and I am like a, I feel imposter syndrome. I do have anxiety and I am glad that I come off as confident, but I'm not that confident, but I do feel like I am bold. And maybe that's the difference. Like I am willing to put myself out there. I've done some very strange things on stage that haven't always worked, for example. But I do think it's like part of it. Like I went to karaoke recently. I'm not a karaoke person. I'm not a singer. I sung three songs because you're at karaoke. And was I off key? Yes. Every time, you know, but (laughs) it was kind of fun and it was funny. And there was people that were way better than me. That's not the point. You know, you put yourself out there and you do it because I don't know, it's just I'm willing to make an ass of myself. But this was very anxiety inducing and I felt it pretty hard. I mean, were you anxious? Were you like, yes, it's out there? You know, it's funny because I like I feel kind of like an open book. And actually, recently someone told me that that's not true. And I'm like, oh, that I have a more controlled image. And I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. That's not how I think of myself. And so, and the people that I really respect and drawn to the public figures, the podcasts I listen to, all the things that I consume are very much centered in transparency, authenticity, like really the real, real. And that Mm -hmm. was a huge motivating factor for me with, um, you know, starting this with you is just like, no, this is... This is such a great way to learn and to share and to give permission and to create shamelessness around these aspects of our lives that so many people don't talk about is to give insight into these kinds of conversations where we really are being vulnerable and um, oversharing and all those sorts of things. So I am 1000% believe in what we're doing. (laughs) And I also uh, had, when I listened to my, I didn't listen to my episode again after my interview, after editing it. Mm -hmm. And then I listened to it and I had a number of moments where I was like, oh, I don't, I realize I don't mind information about myself being out there. Right. And when I'm talking about Andrea or the people in my life, or particularly, I think like when we get into conversations about like parenting and the work that I, you know, I've done around some of like my own trauma that I've experienced in my life, like I have concerns about how my loved ones are going 
to feel about that. When we're talking about our kids, you know, I want to be really protective of Ruby and being intentional in terms of what I share. And so because it's you and I, we just had a really open conversation. And then I had to uh, be like, so Andrea, <laughs> listen to the episode. Let me know like where I have to pair things back. And so I think that that's where the anxiety, it came up more sort of after the fact of like navigating this balance of what I think we're trying to do while also still being really respectful of the people that are in our lives that are not choosing to do, you know, <laughs> to do this. I mean, maybe we'll get some of them on the podcast, which would be great. I would love, like love, 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 love that. And so mostly I just feel so excited and I want people, like as many people as possible to listen and to find it. And um, a couple people that we know reached out, a couple people that we don't know reached out and people are responding well to the information and the format and our dynamic is... Oh, so meaningful. And I'm just really excited about this opportunity for there to be like a mutually beneficial relationship that we have with the listeners and with the audience. So I, I feel really great. I've Yeah, I've been feeling good too. After like some feedback came in, I mean, it's always wonderful to get positive feedback, but the things that people have been really talking about in the feedback has been our big goals with doing all of this to be authentic, to talk about things that people aren't talking about and to have insightful conversations about really important aspects of our life that get um, brushed under or go unobserved or untalked about. And that's really wonderful. And I hope that, um, that it is really connecting with people in that way. And I'm also, even though I'm scared of it, I am interested in uh, some even the feedback that isn't so positive or like if there's something where we got it really wrong or the feedback where there is another um, level of opinion or insight that we missed because of our own perspectives or we just didn't cover it in that moment. I, I think that part of our goal with this is not only for us to get these ideas out there, but to have it be a conversation with listeners. So please, if anyone has any comments or suggestions anything, even a, a little bit of critique, keep my sensitive soul in mind. No, please go ahead, send it. I can take it maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think if you're listening and particularly if you're making it like deep into an episode where we're doing this kind of call out, then, you know, I think we can assume that you're interested in being in, in dialogue with us. And um, in which case, like, I want that feedback too of how we can make this, like, who are the people we should be talking to? What conversation should we be having? What did we get wrong or miss or, um, you know, not uh, cover with sensitive? I mean, hopefully we're going to always be approaching things with sensitivity, but I think that some of this, for us, I guess, to speak for both of us, if that's okay, is like, you know, there is an interest in growth through the conversations as well. So yeah, I'm just feeling very excited and really eager to be in more dialogue with folks who are listening. I realized that we didn't set up our email 
it's oh, it's only in the like in the end credits. Mm, okay. Uh, so in the other episodes, we haven't mentioned it because at the time that we recorded those episodes, we didn't have it. But it's f yeah pod at gmail dot com f y e a h pod at gmail.com so be in conversation with us we want to hear what you think and we want to be riffing answering questions i think particularly we're going to be getting into some more sex stuff as we go along um sneaking in the education wherever we can so if there's those kinds of segments you want us to cover like i want to hear from people i want to be talking to you all i mean i want to be talking to you too robin but (laughs) i'm glad that you started the podcast with me then yeah (laughs) hey i have a uh a wait what do you want to do it yeah all right so you know, I got recently obsessed with TikTok. <laughs> yes. And I heard something on TikTok. Okay. That I had never heard before. And it kind of slapped me across the face when okay. I realized what it was. So do you know what a pick me girl is? At first I thought the first time I heard it, I was like, pig me girl. But it's pick me. Like pick me, pick me. You know what that is? No. You want to take a stab? Oh, I don't know because I think that as when you said pick me, pick me, the only thing that came across is like terrible, uh, you know, misogynist tropes yes. of like, you know, bossy, um, attention grabbing women. So no, I don't want to make a guess. Is it terrible? Is it something bad? It's not great. Um, let me see. A pick me girl. A pick-me girl is chill. She claims to get along with men way better than other women. She mocks other women for liking anything that is mainstream or traditionally feminine. She dismisses women's issues, feminism, and claim women have nothing to gripe about. Says who? This is like some dude has created this model of a woman? What, what is this? Well, and it's primarily on TikTok, I would say, women taking issue with pick-me girls. They're taking issue with other women or with this characterization of women? Well, see, this is what I wanted to talk about because I think there's so many layers that the misogyny really folds in on itself and the inter- internalized misogyny folds in, it folds in on itself. So when I heard this term I and I realized what it was, it hit me a little bit like on a lesser level when I heard the term tramp stamp for the first time. Of course, this was like well over a decade, probably like 15, 20 years ago when I first heard the term tramp stamp. Now, I do technically have a tramp stamp. And when I heard that term and the definition of it, I was like, fuck, I have a tramp stamp. You know, now a tramp stamp is not a cool term. It is like a certain kind of tattoo that, um, you know, I guess a certain type of woman got at a certain period of time, which I was all of those things. The tramp stamp was just all about 90s fashion, though. Let's just be real. Like the low pants, the crop tops. It was a good spot to show off some art. So let's... Let's not be upset with ourselves, any of us, if we, you know, got a t- 
tattoo on our lower backs because our pants showed it off really nicely. Right. The pants were so low. Maybe we had cute dimples back there that we wanted to draw attention to. Yeah. And I, and I, and I don't, I mean, it's like the type of thing when I first heard it, it made my, my heart sink. And it's the same thing with the pick me girl, because it's like, okay, now we have a term for this thing um, that I have participated in. But the whole like kind of reason that you get into it, it all, it just keeps folding in on itself. And this is what's so hard, I think, to get outside of a patriarchal structure when it is interwoven into the culture and the language so deeply. So for me, I was thinking that you would identify as a pick me girl at different times in your life. When I was coming of age, I was a pick me girl, I think. I think I was that definition. I think it was tied into my tomboy aesthetic. And I and I think I I really badly wanted to be one of the guys. And I did that whole thing. I thought girl, all the girl stuff was dumb. And I thought, you know, girls are just drama and I don't want anything pink. I don't want anything skirts. But part of that is a desiring to be seen as an actual human by men, to be able to like be friends, to be able to like have a relationship where you're on the same level as them. And so you kind of take on all of these tropes that men are already doing. I mean, they're not calling, you know, the the high school guys that I was hanging out with aren't going to be called I don't know maybe they will be called misogynists that that's just like the behavior that we had at that time of like yeah I'm going to be there like smoking cigarettes with the guys and and talking about the things that they're more interested in because you know that's what interests me and all that girl stuff is dumb but that's the way they've been I don't know it's just like trying to be one of the guys I think okay and I did do a fair amount like I remember saying when I was a teenager like Oh, yeah, I'm all for equal rights, but I'm not a feminist, you know, because (laughs) of what that meant to me at that time, because I didn't want them to not like me, you know. And so it just gets I don't know, it gets so sad for me because then so what's going on in TikTok on on TikTok right now is that you'll have, um, you know, some women that are on there, young women that are talking about how they're not a pick me girl and all the things that make them not a pick me girl or or they'll be imitating a pick me girl and how that they behave and everything and ultimately like to me the pick me girl isn't the issue the tramp stamp isn't the issue it's it's the culture that makes um that puts women down for making these kinds of decisions with the tramp stamp or or in just like giving these fucking labels to things I feel like some shame around being a pick me girl. It does like point out some misogyny that I've had that I've internalized like we all have. Um, But it's also this like kind of cry for just being able to be seen as a whole person. And it doesn't work, which is sad in a way. It's like you still if you're one of the guys, you can't be one of the guys. They don't want you to be one of the guys. Um, and, and who so wants to be one of the guys, guys. anyways? <laughs> I you. I really uh, need to. Yeah. And, yeah. and I'm really like I wrapped up in like what is me? What is my reaction to patriarchy? What is my attempt to attract certain people? It spins me around. Well, and what is just survival? 
Like that's the thing is that everyone is ultimately just trying to survive. Yeah. Pick me girl for me, I think was survival because of the men that I grew up with in my family constantly let me know that I was not enough and that being a girl was not cool. And I just spent a lot of time trying to get men to like me. And I've recently stopped Mm. and it, well, and I can't say that I've completely stopped, but I have made a conscious choice. You're trying to step back from it. I'm stepping back from it and it is eye-opening. And I'm not at the pick-me-girl space now. I definitely was at the beginning of my adulthood and my teenagehood. Um, But I think I still have some pick-me-girl stuff. I mean, I think it came up in our conversation around your femininity and my whole process to even get to accept the expression of femininity. Recently, I started wearing dresses Not because I was going to a kind of hetero event where I was going to be femme presenting, but because I was actually going into queer spaces and I felt like that was the outfit that I really wanted to wear. I used to not give myself permission to do that. So part of me like letting go of this whole um, desire to attract men and to get their attention and to be accepted by them. I feel like I've let it go on a new level and it's actually opening up femininity to me because I can access it in a way that isn't about, um, whether or not I'm desirable in a way. I don't know. It's so complicated and I feel like there's so many folds of it because it's also, it's dealing with, with the misogyny from men, but then this other wave of misogyny comes crashing down on pick me girls from women as well. Hopefully that can help them realize that maybe they're having, uh, what they're doing is not genuine, but the desire to be a seen and whole person is still genuine. Yeah, I mean, the reality is, is that we are all navigating the patriarch. It was the patriarchy after all. <laughs> you know, it's like it's everyone's navigating it in um, the best way that they can. And I arguably it's not serving anybody. But I have a dumb question. Are pick me girls making videos on TikTok as like, is this a term that anyone is claiming for themselves? Or is it simply a derogatory term that is speaking to this level of catering towards misogyny that is in great, that is ultimately at the root of this kind of behavior of like shaming women for feminine attributes? I think it's ultimately the target is that patriarchal structure, but it is definitely being used to call out women that do it. It's not necessarily calling out the structure that creates women that do that. What we should be calling out is the men that will not have actual relationships with women where they view them as people. Yeah. So my understanding of what you're describing is that it is essentially this weird loop that's happening on TikTok where everyone's behavior is rooted in misogyny and each side is claiming to be above it or outside of it or. No, that's right. I mean, it's like and and that's what gets so insidious about the patriarchy is that you can have someone that's really trying hard Um, but still harming themselves. 
And then to get called out by other people saying, hey, you're harming, you're, you're, you're doing this wrong. And that's like on another level of a a misogynistic kind of behavior of kind of blaming the women for having this self-preservation behavior. I appreciate that you're giving that love and compassion back to your, to your younger self. Thank you. I feel like I am parenting my teenage and 20-year-old self, too. I have a lot of kids. I have, like, grown-ass children I got to parent and give advice to. I got teenagers. I got little kids. I got – there's probably a baby in there that I have to parent. Yeah, yeah we're going to have to – instead of just having one photo up, we're going to have to start wallpapering with photos of our right. of ourselves to send compassion oh to from every age and stage of life. <laughs> Can you imagine? They'd be like, wow, somebody come into your house. Oh, wow. you're a narcissist. <laughs> you have a lot of photos of yourself. <laughs> I'm just trying to be kind to myself. I'm just reparenting. It's called reparenting. <laughs> it's called parenting. Don't look at my children. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Anywho. Oh, you know what we forgot to do? Let's end it on a high note. Yeah, this got, it got a little heavy. It got a little heavy. We, we like talked about the onion that is misogyny, the onion that is like therapy and healing and uh, reparenting. So yeah, bring it home, Robin. What are we going to, how are we ending on a high note? Okay, I want to know what's your fuck yeah this oh, week? That's nice. Can I ask you yours too? You, should we do a double fuck yeah? Yeah, I think we should both do a fuck yeah. So my fuck yeah right now, the podcast for sure is a big fuck yeah. Knowing that it's out there, that people are listening to it and uh, getting something out of it, that is huge. That is giving me life. Um, And I went to a wedding this past weekend. And I really have not gone to many weddings. And I realize that I love weddings. <laughs> like I just, I, I cried through like the whole thing. I just love people expressing their love in their own unique snowflake kind of ways. I love the ways in which like the people that love you also come together. Like it's just, it's such a wonderful ritual. Um, and I spent a lot of my life really hating on the homogenization of like the white wedding, right? Like I feel like I have, you know, I don't appreciate the like cultural institutions that kind of force us into these nuclear family dynamics, but I just, I'm a big old sap and Andrea and I got to get really dressed up. And I, I don't know the last time that we did that. And just to like, we, we, the way that our relationship has developed also, this is the first time we've really danced together. Like we've been together for four wow. years and we have not hit a dance floor together. And she That's is nuts. a killer dancer. <gasps> oh my gosh. Like, That's- oof. Like giving me butterflies. Like I was like, oh, I want, I need to like rip these heels off and like really be able to dance with you. Like it was beautiful. 
and sexy. I and love we it. stayed at a farm. So we got to feed alpacas and chickens. And there were friendly <laughs> peacocks there. Like what? what? Where, it, it was Did you so touch one? Yeah. I they Did came you know peacock? every morning and ate from my hand. What the fuck, Sarah? That sounds amazing. It was it was so magical. Did you touch an alpaca? I did. The alpacas are real cute. They're kind of stinky, but they are really, really Were cute. Were they soft? Yeah, they're I mean, it, I find wool to be kind of itchy. And it it sort of feels like but like, yeah. yes, I they're so lovely and fluffy and they have little like um because they were sheared i'm assuming they use the alpaca fur the alpaca fur on this farm it's called morning song farm it's outside of temecula california and it was so lovely um but they had because they were sheared they had like little fur pants like they looked like muppets (laughs) yes like leg warmers no, it didn't really, it didn't cover that. Like the, their whole midsections were sheared, but then they had these like floofy pants. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. I love a, um, I love a ritual. I love an expression of love in front of yeah. your loved ones. I mean, that's when you're really keying into the yeah. best that weddings have to offer. What's giving you a fuck yeah right now? Okay. So I cut my hair recently and in this conversation about trying to attract people and how you do that versus who you are and what you want. So I've been trying to work out this idea. And I realized that I have for well over a decade been cutting my hair in a way to try to one, please my partner, but also be like funky enough to please me. But I've always Mm -hmm. had this level of feeling a little basic with my haircuts. And, and this is not to tie in basicness to anybody else. But for me, I'm just like, I want it to punch a little harder. You know, like I could never get it to punch the way I wanted to. And so I decided to go back to a haircut that I had in my mid 20s that has always reigned as my favorite haircut. And I got it. And I love it so much. I love the reactions that I've gotten from people I've gotten from multiple people, including like people that I don't know very well or that are totally outside of a kind of, you know, counterculture, like moms at the, at the school have been, they, this is the comment I get the most. That haircut works for you. This is so you, I love it. And Uh, I just feel it is so you. Thank you. And I, I feel so good fierce. in it. Like I look in the mirror and I feel like even if I'm wearing sweats, I feel like I'm giving the information that I want to give to people when they just, you know, we are our clothes, our hair, our makeup, all of this stuff um, is a kind of symbolism. We're symbolic creatures. We understand that kind of symbolism, even if we don't overtly talk about it. And so I feel like I'm I just feel more on point, you know, and I've been playing around with makeup and clothes and kind of redefining, trying to find what I truly love, what gives me that warm spot in my heart. So that's my fuck yeah right now. I'm really enjoying the way I look. Well, you're going to have to 
send a recent photo over so that we can post it oh, for yeah. people to see your mm-hmm. new okay. fabulous haircut. Yes. <laughs> and maybe I'll put one up from the wedding too. Oh yeah. The, I want the, I want yeah. I want to see those alpacas. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll send them to you. (laughs) Well, this was wonderful. Uh, We have um, a pretty fabulous guest on next week. So we will be getting back to interviews. But in the meantime, uh, send us your fuck yes, your requests for guests, for topics, for educational segments, for, uh, you know, feedback. We want to hear from you. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. Knocking them out of the park. Fuck Yeah podcast is produced and hosted by me, Sarah Tom Chesson, and Robin Jennings. Theme music is produced and performed by she, her, sir. You can find out more about what we're up to at fuckyeahpod.com or reach out directly at fyeahpod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the pod, give us a hand. Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you listen. And make sure to share it with a few friends. Thanks so much for tuning in.